Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Jason Zander, who's Executive Vice President of Microsoft. When he started at Microsoft in 1992, he was a software engineer writing code. Uh, today, he's in charge of the intelligent cloud, the intelligent edge, and the core of uh, Windows, which we all know. So, Jason, I want to welcome you very much uh, to this conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be back. And uh, I know just given the environment, I was looking forward to seeing you in Houston, and I look forward to seeing you again at some point. But it's great we can have this uh, interchange today. Good. Well, we appreciate the opportunity. And obviously, it would have been great to be in Houston, but we'll do it again in the future. And maybe just start with, you know, where we are in the world today. And um, you have thousands and thousands of people working for you in the organization, and you observe a lot of other companies. How do you see COVID-19 changing work? Yeah, COVID has been, of course, a huge focus for us. And like everybody else, there's both the impact that we have for our own company that we've had to go deal with. Uh, but then we've also been uh, a core supplier for teams and companies, education agencies uh, as well that we've had to go uh, work with. Uh, in particular, as you can imagine, Microsoft Teams, uh, we have done 4 billion meeting minutes in a single day. Uh, we've been 200 million daily active participants. I mean, essentially, you got into this mode where all of a sudden all of us are working from home or school from home. And how does one actually do that? And I would say that the opportunity for us to have had a cloud, built a cloud, and brought that together was really allowing a whole bunch of that productivity to kick in uh, for everyone. And to be honest, it would be hard to imagine how that may have even worked even three years ago. Because you know, if you were on the cloud already and using some of this tech, um, you could, you know, a bunch of our customers were up and running in like 48 hours. Uh, others had to take a few weeks to go kind of get it sorted. Was it in terms of scaling up to the numbers you're talking about in terms of minutes and meetings and people, was it a challenge to get your cloud ready for this or was it pretty seamless? Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, look, it, with with any of that kind of rapid growth, I mean, we definitely uh, went through and, and, and did a whole bunch of additional work to make sure we could deploy it. Uh, one of the advantages of the cloud, though, is it does have all of this massive scale and the ability to kind of shift workloads around. And I'll give you a great example. We have this uh, Windows uh, virtual desktop, WVD. That's the opportunity for someone to essentially be running their computer from the cloud. So all my desktop applications and like the business apps I run, I can be doing that. Uh, we had companies like Centrica, you know, that's a, you know, in the energy services space, um, they got 26 million customers in the UK and they were able to get 3000 employees up and running on it. So those were things that basically just worked. Uh, I would say for things like, like teams, uh, for collaboration, uh, we had a lot of brand new customers, folks that maybe hadn't been users yet. And so they mostly just had to go through the provisioning. And then, of course, we were making it work worldwide. Um, but if you compare the cloud, of course, we've already pre-positioned over 60 regions around the world, hundreds of data centers, millions and millions of you know server nodes. They're already there. And if you can imagine COVID, if you had to go back and do a procurement exercise and figure out a place to put the equipment. And by the way, the supply chains were actually shut down for a while because of COVID. I mean, like it, that's why I say even three to five years ago, I think we as industries would have been pretty challenged to have responded as quickly as we had. It really is amazing. You think if the technology hadn't been there, the world economy could not have continued to function to the degree. Yeah. Has. What do you see about people actually working at home and how, you know, you 
you have a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the world is how people have adjusted. Yeah, it's it's been amazing, actually. We are also not dissimilar to, if I think of some of our energy customers that we work with, of course, they have a, a, a set of folks that work kind of in office settings, but then they have frontline workers, folks that are on rigs or, you know, if it's electric, where they're literally out in the field. Um, and you got a combination of both. And we have that uh, as well. Uh, as it turns out, we, of course, have a high percentage of a population that can work in our offices all around the world uh, in different locations. But then we also have our data centers. We have other kind of specialized facilities that require people to be on site. So our essential workers, uh, we've had a set of those, too. We've actually adopted some of the same techniques that our super majors used and even some of the defense and military groups used with the kind of AB crews and shifting crews and stuff like that so that we can figure out. Uh, how to maintain good good balance and kind of continuity. So we've had all the exact same issues uh, that our customers have, so we can share a lot of notes with them. Do you find, I mean, I think we were talking the other day, you mentioned that one of the things, of course, the boundaries between work and home have eroded. And uh, how do you how do you see that issue and deal with it? Yeah, th- that is so true. I mean, like I thought a 30-second commute to, to, to my den was going to be, Awesome. You know, and, and so I guess in some ways it is, it's, it's super convenient. Um, you know, one of the things I think we've been learning uh, is that, you know, this process of even doing your normal commute, if you are in an office, uh, is an opportunity to kind of distinguish between your work and your home life, gearing up for work on the way in and kind of decompressing and getting ready for home life the other direction. And so ironically, the, the productivity surveys that we've done, uh, with, especially with our folks that can do homework, um, they actually are more productive, but almost to the point of we're also making sure that they take their vacation because uh, we're starting to even see some burnout just because it's just so easy to get wrapped up in work and spend, you know, 12, 18 hours uh, where before you would have had a forcing function to make you kind of let up a little bit. And as you said before, I mean, without the technologies we have today, if this had happened three or four years ago, we wouldn't be able to have this kind of connectivity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would tell you that some of the other things that we did from a COVID response, um, we also established and, and, and ramped up over 600 life and safety customers on the cloud. Um, these are things, anything from, you know, testing and tracking and things that, you know, even just supplies that medical you know professionals require, uh, first responders, et cetera. So these were essentially applications that perhaps maybe we could have used all along, but didn't have, or they needed to scale very rapidly. And so again, I just, I just kind of worry that, gosh, if it had been three to five years ago, and you didn't have that kind of elastic cloud computing capability, you know, all over the planet, how would those things have gotten deployed? Uh, Because I do think that they helped actually increase response uh, and and, and efficiency uh, and hopefully, you know, helped, uh, you know, with a a whole bunch of people making their life better. So it's been pretty amazing that way. Uh, One other one too, retail. Another one I'll tell you, people have hit the same level of capacity in some of the folks that do remote shopping than they did during Black Friday. It's That's the peak rates they've been hitting. Right. So what you did for COVID, the different aspects of it, can you elaborate a little more as to what you were able to facilitate that would not have happened without the without the cloud? Yeah. If you think about some of the things that, you know, the general mechanism is I now need to go build up some uh, rapid applications. I don't have time for long IT cycles. I don't have, you know, four months to go build something. Uh, Think of some of the apps that we've actually published around being able to do things 
like track PPE, you know, the personal protective equipment, things that doctors and nurses and, you know, frontline workers, you know, are basically using. Uh, we found several different cases where people were able to use the cloud programming platforms, create apps and get them deployed and get them up and running and used was very, very quick. That's on one end, probably the more tactical end of the spectrum. On the other end, we've also done a lot of things around data sets and advanced, you know, kind of data, uh, you know, work that we've done. Frankly, how do we find a cure? Now we've done things like folding at home and making sure that those things could be hosted on the cloud. Uh, these are things like, you know, dealing with protein folding and things that will, will be used in the search of a virus. Um, you know, so, or, or sorry, a vaccine for the virus, um, obviously. The, so if you think of those things, those are wildly different spectrums from the kind of tactical, we need to manage and do logistics to actually we need a search for things that are going to get us all back to, you know, basically normal. How does that stuff work? And then one in between, I will give you two. There's also a whole bunch of stimulus packages and payment systems that are getting created and deployed, small businesses and all sorts of things. Uh, we've had financial services companies that run on top of the cloud that they may have been doing a couple of hundred, you know, kind of big transactions, thick like loans and stuff a day. Uh, we've had them do tens to hundreds of thousands in a day when this, when some of this kicked in. So as you can see, it's generally applicable, not even just the life and safety, but even some of the financial responses and some of the other systems. And the point is with the cloud, I can just go to the cloud, provision it, use it. And eventually when things cool back down, I can just shut it off and I don't have to worry about having bought servers find a place for them to live, hiring people to take care of them. One last question about the cloud. How has COVID-19 and the coronavirus changed the cloud? Yes, it's been super interesting. I mean, like, so for one thing, I think all of this, you know, growth and and the that we've seen, uh, it has really made us sit back and look and say, okay, uh, when we have situations like this, obviously unprecedented, massive, massive growth coming through, no way to plan for it. Uh, how do we get the most efficient systems that allow us to go do extra provisioning, et cetera? I would say the other thing that was quite interesting, and this would probably impact others, you know, that are viewing, um, there was disruption in supply chain also, right? And I think many of us saw this, at least in the States, uh, probably other places around the world. If you think even the food supply chain, every once in a while you'd see some hiccups. It turns out that, you know, when you have entire factories shut down for six weeks, obviously, you know, your supplies are not coming through. And so there's a whole bunch of additional work that we've done around, okay, how do we do even better planning around that, making sure we can hit the right level levels of scale in the future. Uh, God forbid we should have another one of these, but I think we can and should be responsible to, to, to make sure that we've got it figured out. So a whole bunch of, of really good learning out of it. And then finally, I would say that just, you know, maybe perhaps not the technology side, but the policy and the investment side for us, it's never been more important for us to collaborate with healthcare universities you know, and others. And I think we've kicked off a whole bunch of new partnerships and work like that, that I think that will benefit us in the future. Because I think the one thing is it's been a hundred years since we've had a pandemic like this, a global pandemic. And so I think, you know, this was a good also wake up call for all of us and figuring out how to marshal and be able to respond even better, you know, in the future. Right. I suppose one other way is just the, uh, uh, the degree of streaming services that people are using for uh, watching things. Yes, that is true. And thank you for reminding me of that um, our Xbox usage actually went up dramatically. Also, I mentioned Teams, I mentioned a ton of that, but it turns out Xbox Live and folks using our xCloud and, and, and gaming systems, uh, believe it or not, had a pretty good spike. I'm not uh, and surprised. It, I'm not surprised. Yeah, not, not surprised. And of course, it's running in the same data centers as Teams and everything else. So that it's sitting on top of Azure and in our data centers. And so it's also one of these other cool things, which is the we can actually uh, balance 
workloads. So business during the day, gaming at night, you know, things like that. Uh, and we can make that cost effective, which is a better consumer experience. Uh, and of course, our priority was to make sure that we could support remote work, remote everything mm-hmm. and some of the life and safety stuff. But uh, it, it's good to see that, you know, yeah, I think a whole bunch of home activities have really uh, taken off. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's pivot from this to one specific industry that you've worked with and focused on is the oil and gas industry. Obviously, the cloud is part of it, but the big term is digital transformation. And when you talk about digital transformation in the energy business and your engagement with it, what does that mean? Yeah, and uh, it's never been more busy, I would say, because, of course, we have this combination of you know, the COVID-19, you know, some of the recession effects that we talked about. In addition to that, there, of course, has been all these dynamics around, you know, the the price of oil and uh, the fluctuations that are there. And when you put those things together, uh, I actually think that the cloud has been uh, super beneficial in order to go help respond to that. Uh, Satya, our CEO, had had made the observation that we've seen two years worth of digital transformation in, in literally about a two month period. Um, that's all the remote work and everything else that we've seen. But one of the things that I'm seeing, especially if we're talking the oil and gas industry, um, you know, look, I, I may have less people to be doing, you know, certain types of work. I need to keep the business going, and especially if I think of upstream. I still, of course, have a requirement to make sure that I'm finding new sources of energy uh, going forward. And the question is, how can the cloud help you with that? Um, so this one's a very rich area that I think it'd be good to discuss. Uh, things like HPC and IoT and even just the backend data centers and how do you run more efficiency, uh, is especially for, perhaps, for example, if you even have less personnel to be doing some of those jobs. Uh, those are all some of the trends that we've been seeing there. So all of those fit under the heading of digital transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What are you hearing from the companies? What are they asking you for? I see a couple of really big trends that I think are interesting. One of them, again, is like any other business. Um, you may have less people to do the work you were doing before. So you can even start off with your normal operations. We've had a lot of cases where people have been moving out of their own data centers and into ours. Uh, let us basically take care of that part of the system. We can run it cheaply and efficiently for all the reasons we kind of, you know, hinted at before. Uh, and, you know, so I'm seeing a huge amount of data center acceleration, uh, folks that really want to move even faster on getting their workloads removed. Um, that's one category. And frankly, that's true for oil and glass, but it's also true for, you know, f- you know, financial sector and retail and, you know, others as well uh, across the board. More specifically for oil and glass, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do there in particular uh, is bring this kind of cloud efficiency, this kind of AI, and especially help out uh, with places where you're doing exploration is a great one. Um, we've got a partnership with uh, Schlumberger and Chevron um, to bring the same kind of tech forward. We've got uh, Schlumberger's Petro, uh, Petro uh, Technical Suite uh, on Delphi. That's running on top of the Azure environment. Um, so they're able to go off and go use some of that native you know, technology, which I think is really great. We also, on July 17, announcing a, uh, an alliance with Halliburton and Accenture, basically to do some additional you know, work there too. And what these things have in common is the ability to take software, especially from ISVs that work in the space, so reservoir simulation, exploration, et cetera, and marry that to these cloud resources where I can spin things up and spin things down. Uh, I can take advantage of you know, that technology that I've got and frankly, then I'm more efficient. I'm not spending CapEx. I can perhaps do even more jobs than I was doing before. That allows me to go do that scale. And if you're going to have less resources to do something, you, of course, want to increase the, you know, your, your hit rate, uh, increase your efficiency. Um, so those are some of the kind of core uh, things that we're seeing. 
So, so really, it's the combination of the price pressure that's there, the, the efficiency pressure, and that these tools are now available that were not available very readily a few years ago. That's right, because if you if you think about how you would have written or you know, run some of these tools, a lot of these tools you would have had to run on your premises. You would have probably had to go off and provision, uh, purchase hardware equipment, you know, so, basically computers, uh, in servers and data centers, you know, rack and stack, install them, you know, get everything up and running. There's all those sorts of things you have to do. Whereas now, uh, it's as simple as being able to, you know, subscribe just like you would for Office 365 or Xbox Live. I mean, um, the, the metaphors is, is otherwise the same. And as you point out with the cloud, our expectation is that we're giving you, you know, massive amounts of efficiency. And then the other thing we can do on this too is you can think about things like HPC. Uh, HPC, high performance computing, uh, a lot of folks, especially in oil and gas, have some of the most sophisticated HPC solutions that are out there today. Um, but what we want to be able to do with the cloud is to be able to enable you to do, you know, even more of those solutions in a much more efficient way. So we've got cases, you know, for example, where people have been able to go from running maybe one reservoir simulation job a day on premises because, you know, they have a constrained amount of hardware where they can actually go off to the cloud. And since we have, you know, all of the scale and all this equipment, you can spin up and do a hundred in one day. And so if that's going to be part of how you drive your efficiency, then being able to subscribe to that, go up and down, it's, it's helping you do that job much more efficiently than you used to and giving you a lot more flexibility. Does that mean with all the sort of people having that flexibility go up and down, does that create a scheduling issue for you all in terms of handling the capacity? Well, luckily, the way that we've set up uh, set up the cloud itself is that we are able to do scheduling uh, of jobs across our fleet. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, we, we even used an example already, um, which was the conversation around business in the day and gaming at night. Um, it's actually not atypical at all to have our compute um, fleet running at high usage percentage for business applications uh, during the daytime. Uh, and then whenever we start seeing people come home from work, well, most of us are at home while we're working, um, but, you know, students, et cetera. Going from, the den, going from the den to the, yeah, to, yes, to the, going from the den to your media room, you know, with right. lots of speakers, you know, cool kind of stuff. I mean, but even when that transition happens, we're able to take the workloads and move them from, you know, the same set of equipment can be scaled up for business as it scales down and gaming scales up, then we have the opportunity to, to schedule against some of the same resources. And then we have other models that we use for those that are trying to provision their own environment. We have things like reserved instances and, and things where you can actually also reserve your capacity to make sure that you've always got exactly what you need. And so the combination of those two things gives you nice pricing performance, but you know, a good level of predictability. What are you seeing in terms of the development of edge computing, particularly in the oil and gas industry, where they have a lot of edges? Yes, there's huge amounts of edges out here. And of course, um, it's, it's comprehensive if we think about it. It's not going to be, of course, you know, if we think upstream, there's already a significant amount of data on that particular edge. I mean, a platform is a really sophisticated edge location, right? I mean, it's got all sorts of sensors and things going on already. Um, but if you then go all the way back to the last mile, then we're talking about the energy grid and how those things you know, are able to, to basically go work. And so that, that whole spectrum is there. And our vision for this is that we're expecting to have ubiquitous compute everywhere. The cloud, of course, has these you know, kind of central hub locations, but then I can get ubiquitous compute all the way off to these edge devices and they can connect anywhere in between and I can run what needs to be run, you know, locally. 
lots of great examples of this. I think one of the ones that we're doing in the space is with AGL, um, you know, which is an Australian company. Um, they've got 200 applications that are back up and running in their data centers, but they're moving over to Azure. So that's kind of your cloud example there. But they're also doing this uh, virtual power plant work that is pulling all of this data back in uh, into that cloud, but they, they can track homegrown electricity. So now I get this combination of what's happening decentralized, what's happening centralized in the electrical grid, but pull back the data, provide visibility to it. Uh, and be able to go back and forth. And that's just, you know, one of those types of examples that are out there. And there's 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 tons of them. You mentioned the grid, and I want to go to that in a second, but I want to ask you one more oil and gas uh, question. Sure. Microsoft has a lot of employees, and some of them object in this day and age to working with oil and gas companies. And how do you handle that? And what's your response? Yeah, absolutely. We And we have like, I don't know, 150,000 employees worldwide. And I would just say that our culture just at Microsoft uh, is we absolutely want our employees to be uh, very open about their opinions and share them you know, with us. We have an open culture that way uh, and we respect what our employees are saying. And so I think to me, it's much more around a dialogue you know, with with our employees about what we're trying to do. And then, of course, from a corporate perspective, uh, you know, we've made pledges around uh, being carbon negative but then also working with our energy partners. And the way that we look at this is that you're going to have continued your requirements and in, in, in improvements in standard of living around the entire planet. And let's face it, one of the core critical aspects to that is energy. I mean, the world needs more energy, not less. And I think if I think about how the, that work needs to happen, there are absolutely the existing systems that we have out there that we need to continue to improve, but they are also a core part of how things operate. And so what we want to do is have a very responsible program where we're doing things like figuring out how to go carbon negative and figure out ways that we as a company can go carbon negative. At the same time, taking those same techniques and allowing others to do the same and then partnering with energy companies around energy transformation. So we still want the investments in renewables. We want to figure out how to be more efficient at the last mile when we think about the grid and things like that. Uh, and we think that the edge and IoT and some of the connectivity work uh, is super important. And then the, even the cloud systems, you know, things like, you know, filtration and capture and stuff like that are all important too. So I think once you have an opportunity to kind of explain this broad view and this worldview, and then we are participating in all of it, but we want to do all of this stuff in a responsible way, you know, that uh, really helps humanity. Um, and then also works with our partners so we can do that advancement. And I generally find that uh, when you get that, you know, kind of comprehensive answer back to our employees, you know, then they understand what we're doing and, and are generally supportive. And so carbon negative, what does that mean for, I mean, Microsoft is a very important corporation around the world, and that's a very important goal. Yeah. What is, how do you define it? So we've already done a bunch of work. We're, we're basically saying we'll be carbon negative by the year 2030, um, which amazingly is going to be coming up really fast, I think, by the time this stuff goes. Uh, by 2025, uh, we're going to shift to 100% renewable energy. So it's, we're talking about Microsoft as a company now, of course, our worldwide operations, our data centers, you know, anything we're doing around uh, that is a Microsoft participant. So we're basically starting off by saying, let's not talk about what everybody else should do. Let's talk about what we're going to do. So by 2025, uh, shift to 100% renewable energy. Uh, our goal is to remove our historic emissions by 2050. Um, so essentially, if you then extrapolate out, you know, over the next 30 years, how do we go back even to the history of Microsoft, which is, you know, um, 40 
40 some year old company. We were founded in like the early seventies. Um, how do we go back and say in the history of Microsoft, we have, you know, emitted this much carbon by 2050. We'll, we will have essentially removed that is what we're doing. The way in which we're doing that stuff, we've announced a climate innovation fund. Of course, we announced all this stuff, you know, back earlier this this you know earlier uh in the year um so we've actually been out with our carbon uh a message for quite a while now um but we're investing in a billion dollar fund over the next four years for carbon remove removal technology uh you know dropping our current car- you know carbon emission by 2030 um you know etc and so we've got lots of you know really interesting you know sets of work we're doing i will tell you that uh one of the other things we're announcing at our inspire conference uh is the transform to net zero coalition which is something new um, that's going to help accelerate businesses to be able to go towards that net zero because essentially we want to do it ourselves we want to work with others we've also are announcing a microsoft sustainability calculator um, for cloud customers um, basically you can help get the transparency into your scope one two and three and your carbon emissions and get control so essentially you can think of us as we want to hit this goal we want to do it ourselves we want to figure out how we build technology to help us do that and then we want to share that technology with others and then all along the way, we want to partner with energy companies so that we can all be partnering together on this energy, you know, kind of uh, transition. Right. So a part of that, of course, what you talked about is about the grid and what Microsoft is doing about the grid in terms of uh, security and making it more efficient and making renewables more efficient. Maybe you might elaborate on that because that's obviously how you're working with electric power is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And if I think about, um, because again, it, it's, we need the standard of living. That's, that means we got to get down to the last mile pieces, uh, and we got to be able to figure out how to make that go. Um, the way that we see the world and, and even just in general with IoT, if you, if, you know, cause IoT we think is a big part of this, right? Which is the just for people watching Internet of Things. Internet of Things. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Thanks. But if I think of, you know, like even in my, my home, just the ability for me to monitor my own electrical usage, smart appliances, but then more importantly, when I get off into the grid, how much am I using? If I do have solar or alternative energy sources, how are those going back on the grid? How is it getting distributed? How are we being efficient? Um, your electric car, perhaps, that you might have in your in your garage. I mean, like all of these things are going to be part of that solution. So the Internet of Things we think is important. Today, you know, the shifts that we're going through in general you know, today we're off all just in connected assets. Like we get them connected, we shove a bunch of data back in. We think that coming up is a digital feedback loop where you get enough data that's coming through the system that you can actually start to be making smart decisions. So not just dumb sensors that are sending a lot of data. It's interesting, you know, temperature and, you know, wattage usage and stuff like that, but then also being able to get the full feedback loop. And then our expectation is we'll have entire connected environments. So, so now we start thinking about smart cities, smart factories, you know, uh, you know, hospitals, campuses, et cetera. So now imagine having all of that level of data that's coming through and the ability to do smart work shedding or shaping of electrical usage, uh, you know, things like where I can actually control brownout conditions and all those sort of things based on energy usage. And if you, a lot of the stuff that's very interesting in Europe, for example, where there's a lot of hydro, there's also the opportunity to be doing smart sharing of systems uh, where we can do very, very efficient, you know, usage uh, systems, but they all require, you know, kind of this level of instrumentation. So again, back into this, you know, intelligent edge and edge deployments uh, are a core part of that. So let me ask you then both about, I mean, you have a focus both on cybersecurity for critical infrastructure, including the grid, and then cybersecurity and the cloud and how your thinking is developing about that and what the issues and how to tackle it. 
I think this one's super important because if there's one thing that always gets more sophisticated, it is security attacks, right? I mean, like we have to make sure that we always have a secure and robust, you know, environment. Um, so the f- sophistication level is always, always going to go up. Uh, in this world, uh, the big investment that we're making is around critical infrastructure. And we just even use the U.S., you know, definition for critical infrastructure is like 16 different, you know, parts of it. Um, and it includes things like agricultural water supply supply, you know, all those sort of things. But it also includes energy. How do I get whether it's natural gas, whether it's electricity, you know, what do those things look like? So the production, the distribution, et cetera, are all part of critical infrastructure. And so we want to make sure that all of those devices that are out there are completely secure. We're making huge investments. Uh, we're actually investing about $5 billion in IoT all up. That includes the security aspects that we've got. Uh, we recently, you know, finished some acquisitions on some security, uh, you know, technology that we're integrating in with our security systems for this. We spend about a billion dollars of OPEX every year. Um, we have 3,500 full-time security employees that just, that's all that they do. And if you think about this, um, it has to be a combination of watching what the attack vectors are to keep things safe. And the part that's really interesting to me too, is how do we keep all the actual equipment that people are using safe? Because if you think about that, oftentimes when I talk to people, even that they run factories, they run all this stuff. It's like, well, you know, I've got an air gap. There's, there's no connectivity. And then my usual question is, well, okay, but when it needs an update to the firmware, you know, the software running on the hardware, how do you do that? Well, I've got this guy named Bob and, you know, Bob goes around with a thumb drive and updates the equipment. I'm like, and where was Bob's thumb drive before that in his laptop? I'm like, okay, it was Bob's laptop you secure. And then I, I, I sometimes see this panic moment that kicks in. I mean, I, clearly some people run a really tight shop and they don't have this issue. So, so they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. We know how to do that. But other, others I've seen just kind of go, Oh, um, Hey, Bob. <laughs> and so like, those are examples, right? Like it's, it's sometimes necessary, but not sufficient. And I think the other thing you're seeing, if you think about 5g and additional connectivity, we're getting all this cool new technology that's there. So I think you have to figure out a way in which you're leveraging Silicon, you're leveraging software and the best in security. And we're investing in all three. So is, does it seem to you that, I mean, is a cybersecurity threat, even as these capabilities go up, is the threat growing? Um, I think you can say that the sophistication level of those that would like to exploit security will always continue to grow. I always tell my team, look, guys, security's never done. Like we may set a particular milestone of tasks that we want to go do, and that's good for that period of time. I think you have to assume that the sophistication can and will always go up. And so, like, therefore, our strategy is more defense in depth. And again, the investments across the silicon as well as the software and the cloud systems are required for that. And as an example uh, with this, and we may, I may even mention this last time, but we're even much further along. We have something we built called Azure Sphere, which is a microcontroller unit, but it's, it's basically tamper, uh, you know, tamper resistant. I mean, the thing is designed automatically to make sure that it actually is patched and up to date and actually connects back with the cloud to ensure that that's the case. Um, turns out we're seeing a huge amount of adoption in that right now for smart appliances. And so I can ask you, where is it located? So it goes into appliances and Right now, uh, yeah, appliances is one of the first in heavy usage. I mean, you probably have seen some of the, the, they seem kind of funny, except when you understand what it could mean. Um, you know, like somebody hacks your smart fridge and puts, you know, some kind of a, you know, a joke on your, on your smart fridge, uh, you know, kind of display screen. It's like, oh, that's kind of funny. What if that, what if that controller unit was controlling the boiler in your house? 
right? The, the things that are actually, uh, you know, cooking, uh, natural gas to go heat your water and, you know, actually run the furnace. I mean, things like that. Like those are the things we have to be anticipating. And of course, that doesn't even then, that's even a low bar, a lower, uh, let's say impact bar in an individual house. If we now start talking about an entire city, you know, what if those controller units are actually running generators that are actually keeping lights on for millions or running clean water or your electrical, you know, et cetera. I mean, like that, those are the things we need to make sure that continue to be secure and efficient. And so I think there, again, there's this intersection of investment in silicon, investment in software, investment in cloud, and then operationally, how does one put all these things together so that we can get the best innovations of all the new technology that will help with the efficiencies and help with, you know, really, you know, great functionality we require, but do it in a really super secure way. And some of the stuff we even do at the military level, you know, the investments that we're making there, uh, we're battle hardening a whole bunch of this technology and equipment. And we want to make sure that it works in this space as well. We think it's super important. It was 5G. Um, is that one of the areas that you're focused on in terms of both security, but also kind of Microsoft's role in 5G? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we do think that, you know, 5G and, and, and satellites, another one, but let's talk about 5G. Um, and from a 5G perspective, uh, I'm absolutely expecting, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing obviously lots of deployments, a lot of the operators out there today, uh, the carriers uh, that, you know, we have phones in our pockets and stuff like that. But one of the cool things about 5G is just the fact that you can get up to 10x speed improvements. And some of the protocols and things that we see make it much more uh, amenable to some of the industrial automation that we see. Like you wouldn't use Wi-Fi in the factory, but 5G actually gets you much, much better. We've got industrial uh, you know, partners that we've done that work with right now. And so you start seeing things like private LTE deployments and, and things like that that, that could use in a factory or in a mine or at a site are all great examples of this. And so that connectivity really helps because now I can get even more devices hooked up. We actually recently made two acquisitions in the space, actually a firm networks and Metaswitch uh, networks. Uh, two examples of that with, with software, because one of the things we do, of course, is we're, we're a software company. Uh, we work uh, both at the hardware and with the software. Uh, and we think those are core elements to enabling, you know, this new, new kind of future. Right. So well, let me just ask you a couple more questions, uh, one of which sort of follows from some of that and some of the sensitive areas in which you're involved and the capabilities, which is uh, data, privacy, regulation, you know, how Microsoft sees this problem, which has kind of come to the fore. Who's responsible? Data regulation. Yeah. I mean, we, we have huge amounts of, of compliance uh, work that we've done. And of course, it's been a very, you know, based on on industry and how it goes through. Obviously, there's a different set of rules we have for healthcare and financial systems and and for other things as well. Uh, obviously, there's a whole bunch of work around uh, policy. Now, our, our thing here is to try and make sure that where there can be shared benefits that we're able to go in and actually share. Some of the, even the COVID stuff that we talked about up front, sharing of healthcare data and stuff like that, not personal data, of course, but general healthcare data and making that generally available to research and things and leveraging the cloud as a way to get access to that, you know, is actually super important. Um, so to us, it's a combination of building in what we would call data governance, which is the ability for you to, you know, have control over your data. You can tag it, you can decide what's yours, what are things you're willing to share, uh, even with partners, uh, but no one else, you know, things like that as well. So you have to have full control. And of course, having good support for all the compliance uh, requirements that companies have to operate uh, is also super important. Right. So um, when you started in 1992, 
a lot of things have happened since then in terms of technology, uh, frontiers that you might not have imagined back then, uh, a series of frontiers. Kind of what's the frontiers in your thinking now? Is it quantum computing? What's, what's, what's ahead that we're not quite seeing yet or you're just beginning to see? Yeah, because it, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, when I started at Microsoft in 92, there was no office, but we were still working on DOS 5. Um, yeah. And you, you probably have people watching uh, your, your, your podcasts and, and videos uh, who will know what that is and a whole bunch of people to go, I don't understand. Most probably uh, won't. But yeah, they, they, might, they might understand it as like denial of service. Like, no, it's, <laughs> it's the operating system for your PC way back when. Um, so, uh, so much stuff has changed. But to answer your question, um, I think the, the ones that I'm most excited about and what we call Horizon 3, Horizon 1 closer to, you know, a few years out, Horizon 3, big kind of research sort of stuff. Um, the one I think has the most potential impact is quantum. Um, and it's, it's very exciting to me. The way that I think about this is in, in computer science and electrical engineering, we have spent decades trying to figure out how to emulate nature, uh, and do it in probably what is a very inefficient way. I mean, your, your, your brain has like two petabytes of storage and it runs on 40 watts of electricity. Wow. Uh, there is no way that I could ever replicate that today. But then you start thinking about how does nature operate and can we harness that? And so the idea of being able to harness, you know, particle physics to do computing and be able to figure out things in minutes that would literally take centuries to go pull off otherwise in classical computing is kind of mind blowing, to be honest. And so one of the things we're doing is what we call our quantum impact project. And that is taking some of the quantum inspired algorithms and even in advance of having you know full out quantum computers at scale, which I believe are coming, but it is it is it is physics research. It's going to take a while, but we can still take some of those uh, algorithms and run them today on classical computers, and even find better solutions for new things. And we did this with like Case Western, for example, in improving MRIs. Um, and we've got we actually are working with a lot of the energy companies on figuring out how could quantum inspired algorithms make them more efficient today. And as we get to full-scale quantum computing, of course, then they would run natively in hardware and we'll be able to do even more amazing things. So that one has just the potential to really, really just change the world. The other one I would put in is artificial intelligence uh, and not just machine learning and just like, hey, people that bought this would buy this. Or if you watch this movie, you probably like this one. We're pretty darn good at that kind of stuff today. But general purpose AI would be closer to the stuff you've seen in science fiction you know, robots that can just talk and think and help you out and just like do all sorts of stuff. That is an incredibly hard problem. And if we solve that one, that would also be transformative to all of us uh, every day. So it sounds like with quantum computing, as you say, that's horizon three, which presumably means it's somewhere out there, but you're able to pull some of it forward into, into near term. That's correct. And, and the way to think about it is, um, the quantum inspired algorithms, it's a different way of solving problems that lend themselves uh, to the, you know, kind of uh, the quantum realm. Um, and I won't go into details because it probably doesn't really matter. The, the, the meta point is problems that would take literally a thousand years, you might be able to solve in 10 seconds. And we've proven how that kind of technology can work. The quantum inspired algorithms, therefore, allow us to take those same kind of techniques 
but we can run them on the cloud today using some of the classic cloud computers that are there. Um, you know, and so instead of taking a thousand years, you know, maybe it's something that we can get done in 10 days, but in the future, 10 seconds. I mean, so you can kind of see what the impact would be. And then the, the last piece of this puzzle is going to be the hardware. Uh, Microsoft, we, we produce lots of what we call dirty qubits. Um, you know, quantum, like the qubit is the quantum equivalent of the bit you've always heard of, the zero or the one. This is a quantum bit, which is a, you know, a, a different topic, uh, but it's what runs a computer like this. We produce lots of dirty qubits, but we're working on the stuff that would actually be highly scalable and, and pull through. And it quite literally is a, it, it, it's like particle physics and theoretical physics meets applied physics and mathematics. Um, all of those things have to come together for all stuff to work exactly the way it is. It's, but it's, it's just amazingly exciting. I think it's going to change the, it changed the entire history of the world, uh, when we get there. It's, I guess you need a lot of smart people to work on it. Man, I, I love my job. I get to hang out with PhDs. I mean, like they're, they're just free. like, I can't understand half of what they say, but my God, they are smart. Um, you know, I just, I just, I, I feel smarter just sitting in a conference room with them. Um, but yeah, we, we, we have PhDs. We have particle physicists. We have electrical engineers. We have software engineers. Heck, you know, even for our oil and gas folks, uh, we have some award winning, uh, petrochemical, you know, experts, geologists. Uh, those folks are on our team. So, uh, it's it's really rewarding actually that it's not just a bunch of computer science and electrical engineering geeks like me. We've come We're also great things. people to hang out with. Yeah, they're also yeah they are they are cool. Um, but those particle physicists, yeah, yeah it, there's nothing like talking to somebody who's probably going to win a Nobel Prize. It's like yeah. well, at least I, I knew I knew him or her before before yeah, they did that. <laughs> well, that gets me really to my last question. I mean, I think ever since you joined Microsoft, you've been in a job and with a company is always looking to the future. But if you just take a moment to reflect on what this journey of uh, almost 30 years has been like in the company, what's it been like? Uh, yeah, it's, it's first of all, it's been fantastic. I mean, uh, to be honest, I had only planned to be at Microsoft for maybe four years when I actually started. And the, the truth is, I've always found there's some big new challenge, some big new shift happening that I got to be part of, which is cool. And again, hanging around and you know, just being a lifelong learner. Uh, and being around all these smart people that have so much to just teach you, um, it's just been so amazing. I'd say from a culture perspective, the part that's been really fun for me is that when I joined Microsoft, uh, we were very innovative. We're talking like Windows, you know, was just taking off, Office is getting created. We we're creating the Xbox, you know, I mean, there's all these really cool things, very innovative. But I would say just from a culture perspective, I mean, we, we were kind of arrogant. I mean, I, I can, I can admit that being part of that. Um, you know, and then we kind of went through a different period and I kind of feel like most recently we're getting back into our innovative roots and we are really figuring out how to solve some of the hardest problems, but we're trying to do it. I hope with a level of humility actually, and, and not so much of that arrogance, but in a way that says, well, how can we responsibly help change the world? So AI ethics, sustainability, you know, the ways in which we work with governments, those are things that we probably wouldn't have been so sophisticated about back in the nineties, but we're trying to bring hopefully some wisdom and experience with us now, but still be very, very innovative uh, and have this kind of collaborative culture. So I can honestly say it's, it's, it's as fun as it was back in the 90s, uh, which for me is, is, is actually really cool. Right. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for joining us for this uh, great conversation. We really appreciate the opportunity to look back on the development, but also look forward as far as Horizon 3. So thank you for being with us. Well, thank you too, Dan. I appreciate you having us. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. 
For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sarahweek.com.